So we've been learning, uh, we've been studying the book of Galatians, and it's been an in-depth study, and the title of our series has been War on Legalism. Because I believe that's really what Paul is doing in this letter, is he's going to war against this idea, this false gospel of legalism. And last week we studied, the title of the message was The Problem, and we studied how the, the main problem with legalism uh, with legalism is that it was a false gospel and it gratified the flesh and it was not according to Jesus. And so, uh, and we went pretty in depth and I really enjoyed that study last week. And this, this week's study, it goes even more in depth with it and the title of this week's message is not the problem, it's I'm the problem. I'm the problem. That's the title of today's message. See, the trouble with some self-made men is that they worship their creator. Let me say that again. The trouble with some self-made men is they worship their creator. You guys have heard of like Warren Buffett, right? He's, uh, he, I think he grew up in a moderate home, not like rich or anything like that, but he's a self-made man. And the problem with some men like that is they worship their own creator. So self-righteousness is kind of the topic we're going to talk about today. Um, that legalism, and if we're going to war against legalism, the focus of today is that legalism is self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is, the, is uh, confident that one's own righteousness or righteous acts or good works, uh, especially when smugly moralistic and intolerant of the opinions and behaviors of others. That's kind of a definition. Self-righteousness is confident of one's own righteousness, especially when smugly, moralistic, and intolerant of the opinions and behaviors of others. Biblically speaking, though, self-righteousness is known, or we can call it legalism for tonight, and it's the idea that we can somehow generate within ourselves a righteousness that is acceptable to God. And this is a constant temptation for all of us, for all of us, to believe that we are or can be righteous in and of ourselves. It's a constant temptation. And we're going to be constantly hitting this, this topic again and again and again. Uh, so what does Jesus think about self-righteousness? Well, in Matthew 23, six times, Jesus condemns the scribes and the Pharisees for rigidly adhering to the letter of the law in order to make themselves look better than others. You guys remember, he's like, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you do this. And woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you do that. So he, six times he, he came against them and told them, uh, or came against them. So, and then the parable of the Pharisee with the tax collector was specifically told by Jesus uh, that it was about some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. And that's in Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. In fact, I'm going to turn real quick to that. We're going to read that real quick. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. It says, he also spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. 
Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself, with himself. Notice that word, he prayed with himself. He wasn't praying with God or to God, he was praying with himself. Um, He said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess, and the tax collector and the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, the Pharisee assumed his acceptance with God was based on his own actions, whereas the tax collector recognized that there was nothing in himself that would cause God to approve him. He threw himself down at the mercy of God, and he was, he was okay with that. And as we've seen before, that's exactly where God wants us to be in this, in this uh, grace relationship that he wants us to be a part of. So Paul, going back to Galatians, Paul could care less what people thought of him. As we saw last week, he got his message directly from the Lord. Uh, we, we learned about that and how uh, Paul received it directly from Jesus. He wasn't looking for men's opinions. But those who are self-righteous despise others. So self-righteousness says, I'm better than you. So we're going, to, we're going to come across a few phrases that I've picked out about self-righteousness that we're going to come across as we get now into Galatians. The first one I want you to get is that self-righteousness says, I'm better than you. So in verse 11 of Galatians chapter 1, it says, But I, will, I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me was not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, we spend so much time in our lives trying to learn to be like other people. You're walking in the, the grocery store and you look up and, and next to the gum, because that's what we probably should be looking, but next to that is all the magazines, right? And all these magazines have like a thousand opinions of what you should think about stuff. It's just a constant input of what we should think about or what you should think about but we um, we get our ideas about we can even get our ideas about Jesus religion and the church from what other people think like church is supposed to be like this or church is wrong because of that and there's all these kind of ideas that can that can creep into our or our thinking because of what people are telling us but we could let Jesus speak for himself about his gospel. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. He's, he's drawing them back to the fact that this is not from men. This whole idea, this whole gospel is not from men. So here's a question. How do you hear Jesus speak for himself in your life? How do you hear Jesus speaking to you? I get this question on the radio sometimes. How do you know when Jesus is talking to you? Does he like talk in an audible voice? Does he? Has, he? has anyone ever had him speak and say, go over there and buy that hat? 
I've never had that happen. I tell you, the Broncos will win. No, it's never happened. Even though I wish it would. I wish it was that easy, that, that God could speak to us audibly. And, and he does sometimes. But how does he speak to you in your life? If you, let to, if you let him speak to you by his word, through the spirit, as, as Hebrews chapter 1 says, um, he, he, wants, he will do that. He wants to speak to you that way. So Hebrews chapter 1, I'm just going to read this to you. Hebrews chapter 1 says, chapter 1, verse 1, says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he also appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So if God, so back in the day, if you wanted to hear from God, you had to have a prophet, basically. That's the way that God generally spoke. So you had to trust some stinky, smelly guy who probably hadn't showered in a while, depending on the prophet. Some prophets washed more than others, maybe. But it didn't matter because there was only a few prophets and that's how God was speaking to the world, was through these prophets. And they would write it down sometimes. And like I was reading today in Daniel and Daniel said he was reading the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah was not that much older than him. And he's like reading it and he saw that God had spoken to Isaiah something and it meant something for his life at that time and it was really exciting to him. But that's how God was speaking to them. But to us, he's spoken to us by his son. And through his spirit. And so Paul's message was not a man's attempt to reach up and understand God. It was God's effort to bow down and communicate with man. God is a God that speaks. He's not a a dumb idol. And when I say the word dumb, I mean something that doesn't speak. You know that definition of the word dumb? Although idols are dumb, like in the traditional sense, I guess. (laughs) So, um, so, but God is a God who speaks. It says in Hebrews, he spoke through prophets. He didn't leave people alone back in the day when they were walking around in sandals and fighting bears all the time or whatever. He didn't leave them alone. He spoke then and he speaks to us today. And that's his promise, is that he's a speaking God. He's not a God that's just sitting up there in heaven being silent. And I think we sometimes have the picture of him up there like that. Like he's just... You know, I could go a week without hearing from him. And that is not at all God's desire. He is a God that loves to communicate with his children. But he does it through his word. Um, in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, let me tell you what that says. 1 Corinthians 12, he says... Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So contrast spiritual gifts and God speaking with dumb idols. Now we have a God that gives us spiritual gifts so that he can use you to, to speak to someone else, to communicate the word of God. 
And he gives you guys all gifts. Every single one of you has been given a gift where you can be able to minister somehow the word of God. Some of your spiritual gifts are like service where you can minister the word of God to someone just by serving them. Some of your gift is teaching. I prayed about that when I was praying because I believe some of you are gifted as teachers and that's how God's going to use you to minister the word of God. Some of you have the gift of mercy and so God uses that in your life to, to help him communicate to people. But the, it's all surrounded around the fact that God loves to speak to his children. He loves to speak to you and he wants to use you guys and he uses his word to speak. He loves to do it though. So the word, the world does not need good advice or the wisdom of men. It needs a revelation from God. See, Paul said here, in, back in Galatians, he said, I, I got this from direct revelation. I wasn't taught it. You know, the gospel did not come to Paul by his education. We're going to read about his education in just a minute. But he, he didn't figure out all this stuff about Jesus because he was smart or because of where he came from. It came to him by revelation. And that's exactly how God wants to speak to us. He wants to reveal to us through his word. And that's why every morning, like, that's why Pastor Ed is always putting out those devotions every morning. And that's why we're always talking about do your devos. You know, spend time with Jesus in the morning. Because he loves to speak to us. But self-righteousness, since that's what we're looking at today, says, I don't need God to speak to me. I'm doing just fine. Do you guys ever wake up in the morning and think, I'm just fine? I'm doing all right? Did you know that that's self-righteousness? And it's a form of legalism? It is. So, being dependent on God to speak to us every morning, believing that he wants to speak to us through his word, is a form of humility. So, we're going to spend just a moment real quick and talk about how can we know that the Bible is really from God and not from men. You're telling me, Pastor, that the Bible is like a magical thing that God uses to speak to me. And yes, I am. I am telling you that, that God will use this to speak to you. Well, how, how can I believe that? I mean, isn't this just a book? I mean, what if I went and got the, the I don't know, What's another religious book? The Koran. Or like whatever the Buddhists use. Or Sports Illustrated. Why can't God use those to speak to me? Well, that's a very good question. And we gave you a couple reasons if you're curious. First, we know that the Bible is reliable, accurate, and trustworthy as an ancient document. We know that it hasn't been changed over time. Uh, we know that, uh, that the text itself is reliable, and we can know this from study and cons- comparison with ancient manuscript- manuscripts. You guys remember a few years ago when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls? <clears throat> and you heard about that? That was a really, really big deal, because it basically proved that the Bible had not changed in like 4,000 years, because they had scrolls of Isaiah from like right at the time, basically, when Isaiah was writing them just really close and they were word for word what we have today in your Bible right now. The same thing. So we know that manuscripturally it's, it's accurate. It's reliable. And that archaeology 
constantly confirms and supports the biblical record. And nothing has ever contradicted the Bible. There's never been the Bible said like, oh, there's a city here and archaeology was like, there's no city there. It's never happened. It always affirms it. So people, places, and events in the Bible are repeatedly verified. Secondly, we know that the Bible is unique and special among all the books ever written. Uh, It's unique in its continuity, uh, being written over 1,600 years, over 60 generations, with more than 40 authors on three different continents in different circumstances and places, in different times, in different moods, in three different languages, concerning scores of controversial subjects, yet it speaks with one united voice. And that's something that's really important to understand. And it's unique in its circulation, being the most published book ever. It's unique in its translation, being uh, in more languages than any other book. And it's unique in its survival, having survived the ravages of time, uh, manual transcription, then people having to copy it by hand for like thousands of years and still accurate. Persecution, criticism, people always coming against it. It's unique in its honesty and dealing with the sins and failures of its heroes in a manner quite unlike any other ancient literature. Because usually all the other ancient literature is just like, our heroes are awesome, they never sinned. But the Bible is very open and honest about the failures of its heroes, David, Abraham, stuff like that. So it's unique in its influence also, having far and away a greater influence on culture and literature than any other book in existence. And the third thing is that the Bible is a book of predictive prophecy literally fulfilled. And this is the big one. This is the big one, right? Is that the Bible tells things that are going to happen before they happen, and they happen. And that just doesn't happen with any other book. So we can trust this. We can trust it, and we can go to it every morning and believe that God is going to use this to speak to us. For example, there are 300 prophecies concerning the Messiah that were exactly and literally fulfilled by Jesus, such as his birth in Bethlehem, the manner of his death and burial, and so on and so forth, actually prophesying that his hands and his feet would be pierced. Things like that that are just impossible, except for God. Another example is that the Bible describes the rise of four successive world empires before any of them were yet there, with Babylonia, Persia, Greece, and Rome, with such accuracy that all the critics can do is simply claim that the passages were actually written after the events happened. So the critics just say, oh, it's, it's too accurate. It had to have been, been written like a few years ago until we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And now they can say nothing. But you guys will talk to them, and I don't know what they'll say. And the last is that the Bible is a book that has profoundly changed the lives of millions of uh, people, irregardless of their race, class, era, sex, location, age, or social status. It has changed great men and small men alike. So one might look at this evidence and say, well, that still doesn't prove that the Bible came from God. And I'll grant you that point. It doesn't prove it scientifically, but it does give us reason to believe that it did. And in the end, believing in the Bible, that it is from God and this is his word, is a step of faith. But it's an intelligent and informed faith, not a leap of blind faith. And that's why our, every morning when we get up, it is a walk of faith. It's a step of faith. 
So self-righteousness, as we're looking at this, self-righteousness says, hearing from God in his word is not really that important to me. But as, we, as Paul is going to start fighting for grace here, he's going to start fighting for something really important. I want you guys to have that foundation of what self-righteousness is trying to steal away from us and what it's trying to say to us is that the word of God is not reliable. So go back to Galatians chapter 1. We just read how he didn't receive it from men, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ, just like all the word of God. And now verse 13. For you have heard my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Your testimony doesn't have to be quite as crazy as this to make an impact on other people's lives. You know, Paul is bringing up his testimony here, and obviously it's pretty intense that he was trying to kill people. We read in the book of Acts that he was the young man who everyone laid their feet at when they were going to stone Stephen, the martyr. And he was there giving his approval, saying, yeah, let's kill him. And he was on his way to Damascus when he got saved to, to persecute Christians and drag them away from their homes into prison. And I don't think any of you have really done that, have you? Tried to kill people? Okay, well, if you have, it's okay. But our testimony generally isn't that crazy, but it can still have a huge impact on people. And let me tell you how. Let me tell you how. Paul's focus right, uh, on this part of his life was on himself, on his righteousness. He, and, and look what he did here. He compared his life and his own heart and his relationship with God with four groups of people. Look what he does here. He says... I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. So the first group of people was the church, his enemies. He said, you know, his, his mindset at the, at the time was, I'm better than my enemies, so much so that I'm justified in killing them. That's how much better I am. They cannot even be in my presence because I am so awesome. That's what self-righteousness does to you. It makes you hate other people. And it, so that's the first group of people that he focused on, that self-righteousness was, was doing. And then he says, I advanced in Judaism beyond my contemporaries. So his buddies. He's like, I was better than all my friends. I was focused on being better than my friends. He said, in my own nation. Not just my friends, but everyone in my country I was better than. I love focusing on me when I can be better than everyone. And he was. He was better at keeping the law than everyone in his country. And then he says... Even all the traditions, more zealous than all the traditions of all my fathers. So he's saying, all the people that were born before me, I was better than. That's how self-righteousness deceives you. You start to look at everyone else and think, of, look how much better I am than them. And Paul, he's clearly describing to us what he thought about himself at that time. He's like, I was all about myself. I was all about myself. I thought I was better than my enemies. I thought I was better than my friends, my entire country, even all my ancestors. 
Because whenever we have our focus on ourselves, our circumstances, our issues, we are only seeing the problem. Because I am the problem. I am the problem. Self-righteousness is the problem. Self-righteousness gets you focused on yourself and your deeds and your works, and it is only a problem. Because you are the problem. I am the problem. Our testimony, though, can shift. And this is what I want you guys to get out of tonight, is that you guys have an amazing testimony that can change people's lives. If you show them the shift in your life from when you were thinking about yourself to when you started thinking about Jesus. When you stopped looking at your circumstances and started looking at his circumstances. When you stopped looking at your actions and you started looking at his actions. There was a British actor named Michael Wilding who once asked if actors had any traits which set them apart from other human beings. He said, without a doubt, you can pick out actors by the glazed look that comes into their eyes when the conversation wanders away from themselves. Same thing is true with terrible evangelists. Terrible evangelists are those who love to talk about themselves and their perspective on themselves. But a wonderful evangelist, and you guys here, you're going to share your testimony by figuring out when it was that you got your eyes shifted away from you to when you started looking at Jesus. Because everyone in the world can relate to having their eyes on their problems and their circumstances. And the thing that people love to hear, even for the first time, is there's something else that they can look at. Something that gives them hope. Something that gives them something to hang on to. And that's Jesus. So go back to Galatians verse 15. He says, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. David Guzak writes, Before Paul was a Christian, the emphasis was on he and what he had done. I persecuted, I advanced, I was exceedingly jealous. Once Paul follows Jesus Christ, the emphasis is on what God has done. God who separated me, called me, revealed his son in me. What of those things did Paul do? None of them. We think Paul was awesome, right? We're like, man, he started all these churches. And from Paul's perspective and in reality, it was God doing all those things in Paul. And that's what we need to get freed from when we're thinking about legalism and what Paul is talking about right here is that we are free from thinking you guys have to do the things that's in your heart to do. God is going to do these things inside you. What, what begins by being a revelation of Christ to Paul becomes a revelation of Christ in Paul. You know, Jesus revealed himself to Paul and then he began to show himself out, like it started to come out from Paul's very life, which is the exact same way that it happens in our life. But how can you have Jesus revealed to you if you're not reading the Bible? If you're not spending time here? This is how Jesus is going to get revealed to you. You're going to be reading in here, and he's going to speak to you. And then he's going to start getting worked out through you. 
So when we shift our story and our testimony from what we've been looking at to Jesus, grace begins to work. What did Paul say here? He said, When it pleased God who separated me from my mother's room and called me through his grace. When God starts to work, it's by grace. And so what seems sometimes like boring times of sitting in church and doing your devotions or praying in your closet all by yourself are in reality times when the Spirit is revealing Jesus to you in very small ways, simple ways. And then those very small revelations will start to turn around in your life and start to produce fruit in your life. That's why we tell people, whoever they are, just come. We had, a, we had an email and we were talking about our, our meeting today and, and this person was like, you know, transgender. They didn't know what they were. And, and they wrote and said, can we come to your church? You know, what are people going to think of me? And I love what the pastor said. He's like, just come. Just start coming. And as you come, Jesus begins to start to work in you and starts to um, change you from the inside. So this growth is small and indiscernible to the human eye, yet over time the Lord is causing fruit to grow like a tree. So back in Galatians, verse 17 says, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went out to Arabia and then returned again to Damascus. Paul was content to serve God in the desert, in Arabia. Isn't that weird? If you were... I wouldn't go to the desert if I had just gotten saved. But that's Paul. He, he was so in love with Jesus at this time, and he just wanted to get away from everything, even comfort, to spend time with the Lord. And then more, um, something else that was amazing, he went to Damascus. What was he going to do in Damascus? Take Christians out and kill them, right? So this was a city that he probably hated. He probably hated the people there. He didn't have a real connection with them. In fact, he really disliked them. Yet that's exactly where he went. Even though he probably could have been famous immediately in the church and been a bigwig, like when some famous person gets saved today, he didn't go try to become famous. He was content to just go in the desert and spend time with Jesus and and just be with him. So are you content of your time learning in the desert? Are you in the desert right now? Is everything just dry and terrible? And there's scorpions like stinging you every day? Snakes all around. You think something good's up ahead and then it's a mirage and it was just tricking your eyes. Does that feel like your life right now? Paul was, was happy there. He was just spending time with Jesus and, and uh, trust, learning to trust in the Lord. So verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. They were hearing only he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. Paul's whole point in the second part of this chapter is important. It's that his gospel was true and his experience was valid because it really came from God. Does your gospel come from God or have you made it up yourself? Does your Christian experience come from God or have you made it up? 
In other words, are you just faking what you're trying to tell other people? People can tell when you're fake. Like, oh, Jesus is so good. Well, why are you always messed up? Why are you always sad if he's so good? Well, maybe there's part of you that needs to really lay hold of Jesus and find out that he's the source of all joy. And then when you tell people how good God is, they'll believe you. Think about that. You can tell by what you spend your time on. Are you meditating on God's word? Are you filling your mind with these beautiful truths from God or the worthless truths of men? Be careful how much time you you give to anything besides the word of God. If we're just making this stuff up, you can tell by where you're getting it from. Are you getting it from people or are you getting it directly from the word of God? And that's what's so important about being in the word of God again. Self-righteousness says, well, I can even kind of fake it. And then the last thing is the last part of that uh, verse, verse 24, and they glorified God in me. Self-righteousness says, glorify me because of me. That's the whole deal. But Paul says, they glorified God because of me. His whole life was now centered and dedicated to the glory of God. He was willing to suffer and die for that glory and to make him famous just to know him he was willing to suffer. Are you? Does your life look like this? In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, when God came to Jeremiah and asked him to speak, he said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. He was doing all those things. And Jeremiah was a kid, but God wanted to use him because God wanted to receive the glory, because God was the one doing everything. If you built a grand building, let's say you designed this church, and someone else was trying to take credit for it, would that kind of make you mad? Same thing with the work in, in your life. God is the one that's doing it. He should get the credit. So the cure for self-righteousness that we've been talking about today is surrender. Dr. Andrew Bonar uh, told of how in, in the highlands of Scotland, a sheep would often wander off into the rocks and get into the places where they couldn't get out. The grass on these mountains is very sweet and the sheep like it. So they would jump down 10 or 12 feet and then they can't jump back up again. And the shepherd hears them bleeding in distress. And, and they may be there for days until they have eaten all the grass and the shepherd will just wait until they are so faint they, can, they cannot stand. And then he will tie a rope around them and he'll go over and pull that sheep up out of the jaws of death. And the question is, why don't they go down there when the sheep first gets there? And he said, ah, he said, well, they are so stupid that they would dash right over the precipice and be killed if you went after them right away. And that is the way with men. They won't go back to God until they have no friends and they have lost everything. If you are a wanderer, the good shepherd will bring you back at the moment you have given up trying to save yourself and are willing to let you save you his own way. So that's the, the cure for self-righteousness, is to stop trying to be self-righteous. Stop trying. Surrender. 
The cure for self-righteousness is surrender. And maybe you've gone through your life always trying to prove your parents wrong or something. Your parents said, ah, you'll never be good at anything. Or maybe there's that one person in school that was always putting you down and you've always been kind of had it in the back of your mind, I've got to prove them wrong. Or maybe it's God. And, and there's a part inside of you that is rebelling and, and feeling like there's no way that, I, that everything I'm doing right now is, is worthless because I'm trying really hard. I'm trying hard to please you, God. And, and it's not working. Why is everything against me when I'm trying so hard? And that's the exact place God wants you to come to and just surrender. Say, okay, I'm going to stop trying and I'll do things your way. I'm just going to start picking up my Bible every morning and waiting till you talk to me. Instead of trying to figure out my life. Who in here has figured out their life? Jeremy has. All right. <laughs> and he was joking. Guys, why is figuring out our life a big deal to people? But I tell you, like... 50% of the people I talk to as a pastor are like, I just don't know what I'm doing with my life and I don't know what God's doing and I don't know what's going on over here. And I just want to tell them, it doesn't matter. Just surrender to Him. He's got it all worked out anyway. It's all about whether you're surrendering to Him and not trying to be self-righteous. Self-righteousness says, I can take care of things on my own. But humble dependence on the Lord says, I need to hear from you every day. I need to hear from you in your word. So you guys all came to church tonight in a hot church, kind of uncomfortable. And God's telling you, I want to speak to you every day. Are you guys going to surrender to that? Are you guys going to engage with that and say, okay, I surrender. I'll let you talk to me. Oh, but he might say things that you might not like, like, you need to repent. <laughs> but that's when it's just a joy to be with a God that's so loving that he loves to hear us repent. Has, he ever, has someone ever gone to God and said, I repent, and he's like, good, now die. He's never done that. Repent is the most beautiful word in the English language. That we have an opportunity to change directions. It's great. So, that's Galatians chapter 1. We finished an entire chapter. It took us four weeks. Not too bad. Not too bad. You were all scared because we did one verse the first week and you were all like, this is not going to be good. But God is good. So, let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so very, very much that you are a God that loves to speak to us, loves to give us a word here, an encouragement over there, a rebuke when we need it, Father. When it's time, Lord, you will give us guidance. That's fine. Lord, I think you're a whole lot less concerned about the direction that we're going with our decisions of our life than you are with what we're doing with our heart and our attention and the time that we're spending with you and your word. I know, Father, that that is so important to you. God, we want to surrender to you. We want to surrender to that idea that you are going to do these things in us. We're not going to do these things ourselves. We're not going to make ourselves be great Christians. 
We're not going to make ourselves be righteous, but we can allow you to do that work in our lives. Jesus, I pray for every single one here that we would be encouraged as we go home to share our testimony, to give people that are around us hope that if they get their eyes off of themselves and put them on you, that they will be saved. Lord, in, in Exodus, you, you sent the snakes to the people and they were biting the people. And then you had Moses make that serpent and, and that, on the bronze stick and, and to put it up in the middle of the camp. And you said, anyone who just looked at the serpent on the stick would be healed. All they had to do was look at it. And that faith that they were exercising at that point would save them. And we know that that represented you. The snake representing sin hanging on a tree is a perfect picture, Jesus, of you hanging on the cross. And so, Lord, we want to go out into this world and tell people to look at the serpent on the stick. To look at the sin hanging on the cross. To see what wonderful things has been done for them. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit and with boldness. Every time, Lord, in Acts that they, filled, that they were filled with the Spirit, the result was boldness, Father. Lord, make us bold and not worried about what people think of us or the consequences of representing you, Father. But we want to have a heart for people. Lord, I pray for everyone in here who's going through a hard time right now, God, that you would be with them and be close to them. And that this desert time that they're in, they would learn to rejoice in you. Lord, we pray for our pastor tonight, and we pray for Eddie. And we ask that you would still wake him up from his coma. God, we all ask just that you would do a miracle, so that you would be glorified. Just like in Paul's life, when they heard that the one who had been persecuting the church was now a part of the church, Lord God, and they glorified you, I pray you would use this situation to glorify you. Use our whole lives to glorify you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.